Well, starting today and leading up into the summer, we're going to be looking at the first chapters of the Gospel of John. Now, if you know um, anything about the Gospel of John, it is quite different to the other three Gospels. The other three Gospels teach about, um, talk a lot about Jesus talking in parables. They talk a lot about the sort of details of those kinds of things, whereas John is quite a theologian, and it's quite a theological Gospel. So as we go into chapter 1 today, you need your brain switched on. I don't know if you can manage that on a Sunday morning. But we really need to be switched on in that kind of way this morning. So if you've got your Bible with you, if you've got a church Bible, we're on page 1004. John chapter 1, and I'm going to read from verses 1 through to verse 18. Some amazing, incredible words in this prologue to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is he of whom I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. What amazing words, aren't they? Let's just pray again, shall we? And then we'll start to unpack what all that is about. Lord Jesus, as we just read those words, those familiar words this morning, again we are amazed that you took on our flesh and came and dwelt among us. I want to pray that you will just open our hearts to you this morning. Help us to grasp more of what it means to allow you to shine your light into our lives. And just help us to come in awe and wonder and worship when we see you as you really are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. With the best intentions in life, and without any desire to deceive anybody, this often happens. Is that familiar in your experience? We have a curtain pole that is sat on the spare room floor 
that has been there for six weeks. Claire's mum and dad are coming to stay in four weeks and desperately need some curtains. And I keep saying, I'll fix that curtain pole up. You don't need to remind me. But it's still on the floor. Now that can happen in all kinds of areas of life, can't it? We say we'll do one thing. We're not wishing to deceive anybody. We're not telling lies or anything like that. But our words and our actions actually don't match up. We're a bit like certain politicians who I'm not going to talk about. We start to have a credibility gap. We start to have a credibility gap. Does that ring true for you? Do you find you'll say something and say, yeah, I'll do that. I'll get round to doing that. And then actually, we just don't do it. The inclination levels drop, so the procrastination levels increase. I don't see any medics amongst us. Is that a medical term, procrastination levels? But mine certainly increase from time to time. But our words and our actions can often not end up matching. John's Gospel starts with these amazingly beautiful, deep, theological, incredible words. And in a few sentences, what John brings us is the very nature of who we're worshipping when we're worshipping Jesus Christ. Of the nature of who he is, of what he is. And in doing so, he uses language that is really multi-layered. It's language that, to the original readers, would have been significant on so many different levels. So, for the next five minutes or so, you are really going to need your brain switched on. You have to, have to bear with me, because this is a bit technical, this first part. So, stay with me, and then I'll try and lighten it a bit later. Is that all right? So, stay with me. John assumes that his, his readers are going to understand the Old Testament. He makes that assumption when he dives in here, um, in chapter one. So, a lot of the, the imagery here is coming from the Old Testament. But he also understands that his readers are Greek in a Greek-speaking world. So there may be Jews, some of them, but it's, it's a world that's influenced by Greek culture, and John is writing in Greek as he writes this. Now, I'm no scientist at all. My science finished at GCSE, but this is one scientist that I've actually heard of. And Stephen Hawking says this. He says, the eventual goal of science is to provide a single theory that describes the whole universe. The eventual goal of science is to provide a theory. A theory. Really interesting word he uses there. The aim of science, the aim of this whole discipline, is to provide something that may be true. What does John do in the opening prologue of his gospel? He doesn't provide us with a theory as to how the world and the universe and creation and everything works. He provides us with an explanation. He provides us with something that is on a totally different plane. John's answers, the questions of origins, of human existence, of salvation, of eternity, and they lie not in a theory, but in a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. And he manages to do it in a handful of verses. Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel, how do they start off? Go on, you can shout these answers out. What happens at the beginning of Matthew and Luke? What do we get? Yeah, we get the genealogies, we get the birth of Jesus, we get the accounts of shepherds and wise men and all those kind of things. How does Mark's gospel start? Perhaps not as well known. Go on, someone shout it out. John the Baptist. All three of the, the, what we call the synoptic gospels, the first three gospels, they start off with history. They're, if you like, looking down the microscope and seeing actually what is going on when Jesus comes in flesh as a baby. What is the history going on? What's happening to people? What John does is rather different. Rather than look down the microscope and see looking at human history, 
He gets his telescope out and looks at the broadest possible view of who Jesus is. When we look at Jesus in John 1, we see Jesus in relation to questions of eternity, creation, and purpose. This is not a theory. This is an explanation. In the beginning was the Word. And we could stop on that verse, and we could be here for hours and hours and hours. But we will keep on moving. Because there's something really significant there. In the beginning was the Word. What word? What we're talking about when we talk about word here. The Greek word here is the word logos. And what we're really talking about is God's word. God's word. This is one strand of the thinking that comes in here. Right the way through the Old Testament, the word of God is spoken about. And the word of God is um, spoken about in a way that that it's, it's speaking God's actions into being. Because God doesn't have a credibility gap. What God says... God does. Actions and words are exactly the same thing for God. So look at this. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Word, action. Exactly the same thing. What do we find Jesus doing at the beginning of John? He's there at the creation of the world. Through him, everything is made. Psalm 107, verse 20. He sent out his word and healed them. He rescued them from the grave. Again, this is God's word. This is Old Testament. What does Jesus do? He speaks and people are healed. He came to bear our weaknesses. He came to heal us of sin. God's word equates to God's actions. But there's another strand of thinking that comes in through the Old Testament, which is also picked up on in John 1. And it's this idea of logos being the wisdom of God. What word do you think we get from logos? Logic. Logic, understanding, the right way of thinking. And if you go back through the Old Testament, you can go through Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Songs, all pick up on the wisdom of God. And in both the book of Job and the book of Proverbs, we find that wisdom is given a personality. Look at this from Proverbs 8, verse 29 to 30. When he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I, this is talking about wisdom, was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day by day, rejoicing always in his presence. It's another strand of thinking that links in with what's going on here. But there's more. Sounded like some comedian. I can't remember who it was who said that. There's more. Because also, in the Greek synagogues of the day, when they were reading out the Old Testament not in Hebrew sometimes, but in Greek, they wouldn't use the word the Lord. It was considered too holy to use. So whenever that came up in the scriptures, guess what word they used instead? Any ideas? Word. They used that word logos. So what John is doing here, he is under no doubt in what he's saying. His readers will pick up on this immediately. There's also a bit of another strand of thinking coming from Greek philosophers, because Greek philosophers use this word logos as well. They used it to describe that which created the world, not in terms of the Old Testament idea, but it's still there, and John's readers would have understood that as well. So when John writes, he writes with the full weight of all this going behind. You see how rich his language is. There is no getting away from what John is saying. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, And the word was God. Jesus is God. 
That is what John is saying. Categorically, we cannot get away from what John is saying here. And Jesus is all of these expectations, you know, the expectations of God's word, of God's wisdom, the hopes of salvation, everything is met in the person of Jesus Christ. But of himself, Jesus is not the completeness of God because God exists as three persons, doesn't he? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who exist co-eternally together. If you've ever chatted to a Jehovah's Witness about John 1, I don't know if anyone's ever, ever had that conversation. I have a couple of times. They try and translate this slightly differently and they say the word was a God. Now that isn't there in the original. It's just something I think Scott inserted. But anyway... They're misunderstanding this whole idea about word. You can't get away from the fact that when John talks about Jesus as the word, he's talking about Jesus as God. Think of Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. What does John 1 say? In the beginning, the word. Same words, same context, same God. As far back as our minds can think, Jesus was there. This is some early church father who said this, there never was when he was not. Jesus has always been, Jesus will always be, Jesus is God. I don't know if ever you find yourself asking really philosophical questions. You may do, you may not do. Um, but I think there was once a philosophy exam that was set, and the, the question in the exam was why? That was it. To which some clever person apparently just replied, why not? <laughs> but if you ever find yourself asking that question, why? The answer is here in John 1. Because in the beginning was the word. This is John's answer for everything. In the beginning was the word, and his name is Jesus Christ. And we've got to verse 4. Phew. <laughs> Thankfully, we changed tack slightly as we go on. We changed our car a few months back. These are not the exact cars we've had, just in case you were <laughs> wondering. But uh, the car that we had before um, was a little bit, it was slightly more modern than the, the one on the left-hand side. Um, but it was a fairly basic dashboard. And you know when you, when you had to come to, to drive it, you had to do everything manually. So if you wanted to put the windscreen wipers on, you pressed the lever, and they, they did this kind of thing. If you wanted to turn the lights on, you flicked a switch. The car that we've got now is a bit cleverer. It's not quite as clever as Knight Rider. Um, but, you, you know, you sat in it, and so, so, you know, things happen, like the windscreen wipers turn on randomly, and the, the headlights come on if you go through a tunnel and these kind of things. It does all these clever stuff. Now, when you get something new um, that's, like, full of gadgets, you've got two choices, really. You either learn it as you go by trial and error, or you sit down with the manual and you work out what everything does. Are you the former or the latter? Who's a person here who, who likes to work it out as they go? Just put your hands in there. That's me. Who sits down with the manual and likes to know exactly what's happening? Yeah, they, these are the wise few, I think, over here. But actually, it doesn't really matter. The end result should be the same, shouldn't it? At the end of the day, you, you end up knowing what your gadget or what your car does. It's just a different route to it. You know, some people come to Christian faith, and I've known people who, who've done this, who like to get everything worked out before they put their faith in Jesus Christ. Who like to know exactly who Jesus is before they can make that leap of faith. Other people come at it, and this was much more my experience, you encounter God and then you work it all out as you go along. But actually there comes to a point where you've got to ask the question, 
So what? What does all this mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the Word made flesh? Yeah, we've got to verse 4. We've had all the big picture stuff. We've had all this stuff about creation and eternity and beginning. Stuff that we actually can't fully grapple with our, with our finite minds. But now we get practical. Because verses 4 and 5, it talks about Jesus being light and life. And this light that shines in the darkness, but the darkness hasn't understood it. Skip down a bit, you get to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And in these verses, we've gone from looking at eternity to the very heart of the gospel. That the word, that Jesus Christ, has become flesh. And that word dwelling, that I love that the original meaning of that word is he has pitched up his tent amongst us. That is he come and he has moved in. I love that imagery. He's pitched up his tent amongst us. So what John has done is he's gone from the telescope back to the microscope. But it's not down the microscope of human history, but it's straight into the microscope into our hearts and saying, actually, so what? What is this going to do in your life? Because sadly, John says in verse 11, he came to that which was his own, yet his own did not recognize him. Time and time again throughout history, people have not recognized Jesus for who he is. Time and time again in our own day, people will hear the good news of the gospel and won't recognize Jesus or will try and change his claims or will try and make him out to be somebody he never said he was. Time and time again, we prefer to hide away in our own darkness. A couple of years ago, um, when we were back over in Epworth, I was involved in a question and answer session with the Methodist minister and the whole of the year seven group from the local high school. So I had 150 11 and 12 year olds and they had an hour to grill us on anything they wanted. And it was really fascinating. You know, some of the questions they came up with. So they asked us like um, things like about drinking and smoking and drug taking. They asked us questions about sexuality. They asked us questions about who made the world. They asked us questions about what on earth you do during the day when you, it's not a Sunday, you know, those kind of things. <laughs> but there was this question that came up, and it came up in various different disguises. And it was this. If there is a God, why doesn't God come down and sort the mess of the world out? If there is a God, why doesn't he get, get down here and sort stuff out? I'm showing my age now, but there, there was a, a song that was around in the, the mid-90s, a pop song, and it asked the question, what if God was one of us? I'm not going to ask anybody to sing it, and I'm certainly not going to sing it. But it was this song that was all about, you know, what happens if God came down and just happened to be sat on a bus? You know, John has that answer. God in Christ does care. He has come down. He has stepped down into our darkness. Yet so often, we don't recognize him, we don't look for him, we don't see him, and we don't want him. But he has come. Jesus has come. Now we may read this, and we may think, oh, well, we're children of the light. We are children of God. You know, if you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a child of God. You can accept that that is your status. But I don't know if you've ever been asleep 
or even in a dark room when suddenly some light blares into the room and disturbs you. We were in our kitchen a few weeks ago, and I don't worry, we weren't asleep, um, but I think we were washing up or something equally exciting. And suddenly, the kitchen was filled with dazzling light, and we were a bit concerned. You know, what is this light that's shining in? It wasn't coming in from the car park. So I went outside to have an investigate. This is what I saw. A tractor in the field at the back with the farmer plowing late in the evening. And these two lights shone into our kitchen and almost sort of blinded us because it was like, I don't know whether this tractor had pinched something, you know, from some football stadium to put on the front of it. But it was incredibly bright and it just shone straight into our window. You know, sometimes I think when we, we hear these verses about Jesus being light, we think about a nice pretty candle, you know, a nice candle holder on a window. We don't think about that light that comes and shines and disturbs our comfort. Because light can do both, can't it? Light can come and be comforting, but light can also shine and reveal things that actually we'd rather not see. I don't know if you've ever been, you know, sat in your house and the light has shone through the window and you've realized you haven't cleaned your windows for years. (laughs) And the last thing you want is to see all that dirt shown up. Light can be discomforting. Light can reveal stuff that we'd rather it didn't. As the light of Christ shines into our darkness, don't be surprised if it discomforts us. Don't be surprised if it reveals things that actually we'd rather Jesus didn't reveal in us. There have been loads of times in my own experience when I've either been opening the Bible or somebody's been preaching or I've been praying or I've just been reflecting. When God has, through the light of Christ, illuminated something in my heart that I'd rather he didn't, you know, some darkness within me, some sin, some attitudes. And actually, the light of Christ shines in, and it's like, actually, that needs dealing with. That needs sorting out. But how often do we then retreat back into the darkness? Because we're afraid to come out and let Jesus really be Lord of our lives. But you know, Jesus comes to us in grace and in truth. He comes to us in grace and in truth. We remembered over Easter just what Jesus did on the cross, how he took our sin, how he he died in our place, how he had um, victory over the powers of darkness, and how he rose victorious on Easter day. This is the Jesus who John points us to here. I want to ask you a question. Will you let your life be illuminated again by Jesus? Will you let Jesus shine into those darkest places of your inner being and allow him to do his work there? Will you bring your life under the gaze of the one who offers light and life? Or you sit back in the shadows, just content with your own darkness? Will you come and read this passage and marvel at everything that Jesus has done? Or you slink back into that place where perhaps it feels a little bit more comfortable? If this morning, perhaps you've you've read this passage, but you've not really made your mind up of who Jesus is, can I just encourage you to come again, keep reading these words, and ask Jesus to pour that light and that life into you that he has promised. There's another person that he talked about in this passage, and we're not going to bypass him totally. It's another John. It's John the Baptist. The one whose only role it was, was to be a witness to the light. If you look at verse um, 15, 
It says, he comes after me because he comes before me. It's one of those sentences you've got to think about for a while just to get your head around what it means. But basically, because Jesus has always been, um, he comes before um, John the Baptist, even though John the Baptist is the one who proclaims the way for Jesus. You might need to go and reflect on that just to, to work out exactly what's being said there. But you know, our role, if we're Christians this morning, if we're following Jesus, the Word made flesh, is to be witnesses to Jesus. Our role is to point people to Christ. A few months ago, I witnessed a car crash. I was walking down a road, minding my own business, and this car pulled out. It wasn't looking at all where it was going, just drove straight out of a side road into a passing car. So I did the the good and honourable citizen thing. I went over and said, I've just seen what's happened. If you need a witness, here I am. I'll give you my, my details and whatever. But these two blokes were not at all interested in me being a witness. They were more interested in shouting at one another. And so I hung around for two or three minutes and thought, I'm not going to get anywhere here. They were just bawling at one another. They were really aggressive. Um, And so I thought, I just need to come away. But I was still a witness. Didn't really make any difference whether people were going to listen to what I'd seen. My call was still there to be a witness. I could have explained what had happened. Yeah, that is the job of the witness, isn't it? To offer an explanation of what has happened. If today you've encountered Jesus in your life, if you know what it means to be rebirthed by Christ, if you know what it means to be forgiven by him, we are all called to be those witnesses. But I think sometimes we can get a bit confused here. There's a difference between being a witness and being an evangelist. Being an evangelist is a spiritual gift. It's one that's talked about many times through the New Testament. You know, Billy Graham is perhaps, when we think about evangelists, we probably think about Billy Graham. Don't worry, you do not need to book Anfield for your next tour as an evangelist, unless that's what God is calling you to do. We're not all called to be evangelists in that way, but we are all called to be witnesses. We're all called to be people who can testify to what the Word made flesh has done in our lives. We're all called to be those type of people in our lives, in our homes, in our schools, our colleges, in our workplaces. We take that call seriously, to be a witness to the Word, to be a witness to the Word made flesh, the one who has pitched up his tent and moved in, the one who has come and dwelt amongst us. As we unpack John's Gospel, as we keep going, this is something that keeps reoccurring. Will we point other people to Jesus? So I want to leave you with two questions, really, this morning. The first thing is really one, if you want to go away and perhaps chew over this rather more, what are we going to do with all this about light and darkness? Is Jesus shining a light in your life at the moment and actually is revealing stuff that you know you need to sort out with him? Can I encourage you this morning, you know, do business with God. After the, the service is ended, there will be time for prayer or just sit quietly. You know, the minute, I always think this in church, the minute we go out and have coffee, the moment is, is quite often lost, isn't it? And we then fail to do that business with God. If that is you this morning, if you know that God is shining stuff in your life, do business with him. He's gracious, he's full of truth, he's full of forgiveness and mercy. But do that. And the second thing, are we going to take the call seriously to be witnesses? Are we going to radiate this same light that is talked about here to the people around us? These are incredible words. Let's come and worship and bow in awe to the one 
who has become flesh for our sake, the one who is there at the dawn of creation, and the one who is with us now by his Spirit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, word made flesh. Thank you that you came to earth. Thank you that out of love you were obedient to your Father's will. Thank you that you reveal the way that we can have relationship with the Father. And Lord Jesus, I want to pray for each of us this morning. I want to pray that You will help us to have hearts that are open to your light being shone deep into our hearts. Help us to be able to respond to you. Soften us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name.